Amen. Good morning. morning. Hey, welcome to Seacoast. Welcome to Seacoast. My name is Pastor Dale. And uh, last week for me was a great week. I really enjoyed listening to Matt uh, bring the word. Uh, And I owe a word of thanks to some of you because I got three anonymous notes, all included different gift certificates for me to take drum lessons. So I'm not sure what's up with that. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm thinking about it, though, so I'm actually, I'm actually thinking about that. And Matt's offering free lessons in exchange for this table most weeks, but that's okay. Loved it. Loved being taught last week as Matt brought, brought the word. Good morning. What a great day, huh? What a great week it's been. What a great week to know God, love God, and to be with Him. Open your word today to Psalm 71. Psalm 71, we're in a series entitled, uh, God is. God is. What is, who is God? What is he? Not what is he, but who is he? What's he like? How do we know God is? Uh, Psalm 71 will be our passage this morning. Father God, thank you so much for the word and for the worship and the chance to be together. What a great, great God you are. Father, we've stopped by, uh, we start by stopping and just thanking you that you are, that you're not, a, you're not a fantasy. There's a lot of mystery to understanding all that you do and all that you say, but yet you are not a mystery. You are very, very real. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the psalmist. Thank you for these men of old that knew you, walked with you, and wrote songs about you. And as we study another one of those songs about God is, I pray that you would teach us some fresh truth about yourself. And especially, Father, this morning, I pray you help us understand, too, how to pass that truth and the importance of passing that truth uh, to the next generation. That's my prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. It's been said that the church is always one generation from extinction. When you think about that. We hear stories of churches growing, individual churches growing around America and overseas and around the world, and that is happening, but at the same time, a record number of churches that you see In any city in America, no one is exempt. You'll see churches closing their doors. You'll see churches turned into high-end restaurants with stained glass windows. Faith is a foundation, a foundation for uh, my family, a foundation for your family, a foundation for this family of faith that we call Seacoast. is always being passed into the hands of the next generation. Now, for a lot of us as parents, that's kind of scary, right? Because you kind of think, whoa, so my kids are the ones that have got to pass this thing on. If my grandkids are going to have a chance. Wouldn't it be great if there was a way to guarantee it? 
but there's not. Wouldn't it be great if there was a way that I could uh, cash in some funds and uh, pull out a credit card and just purchase it? Kind of purchase the faith, wrap it up, dress it up. Maybe this coming Christmas I give one to each of my kids, each of my grandkids. Maybe even give a couple for ones that aren't yet born yet. Just a hint for Tom and Jamie if you're listening out there somewhere. You know, all of us wish we could kind of take the faith. If, if there was a way to buy it, what would you spend to get it? If you could actually buy it, wrap it, and deliver it to the next generation with the guarantee that it would take, that it would become their own. I don't know about you, but that would be the best and biggest and most important gift you would ever buy. True? Or what if it was guaranteed because it was passed through our DNA? I mean, if you were born to Christian parents, somehow there's a Christian gene. So it's somewhere in their DNA, maybe it gets passed on. But as it's been said, there are no grandchildren in the family of God. Meaning, you don't come into the family because your parents are in the family. You've got to, at some point in your life, own it for yourself. There are children of God. Whenever you place your faith in God, you become a child of God, but that doesn't make your grandchildren or the children of your children or your kids or anyone else a part of the family. Now, this is not a new challenge. It's not unique to today, but it's a huge challenge. That I know as I worked my way through the Psalms and prayed and thought, wow, I've got a couple more psalms to teach this summer. Which ones is God, or, you know, which psalm is God kind of leading me to? And there's some big ones and famous ones. This one I've actually never heard a sermon on in my life. It's one of those many psalms that just kind of often gets skipped over. And as I delved into it and kind of got into it, I thought, wow, I think there's a word for us, especially in today's culture in which the next generation is increasingly at risk of not catching the faith. You're going to see that in this psalm that the psalmist has that indeed at the center of his mind. This is not a new challenge, this idea of passing the faith to the next generation. Israel often experienced swings of faith and swings of faithfulness or lack of faithfulness to God and it often swung from one generation to the next. And it often, it often swung on the, on, 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 in times of good times, not bad. It was usually times got really good and they got blessed by God and they were prosperous and things were a little fat and sassy and healthy and, and, and life was good and there was peace and therefore they would move away from God. Who needs God if everything is so good? And then you move away from God and then they experience some pain and the pain often is used by God to bring them back to God. So you see these cycles of faith going on but that's, that's a painful way to be brought back to God through pain. Through the pain of sin, the pain of stepping away from God, the pain of moving away, away from His will, and, and then being brought back in a very painful way with all the scars that go with that. That's not the preferred path. But it often was in the history of Israel. That's why Deuteronomy 6 gives instructions for parents and grandparents to transfer the faith 
to friends, to family. That's why the Scriptures are given to us. So we've got literally the written Word of God that we can read to transfer to generation to generation. And we can go back to the text and we can go back to the Word. That's why Jesus Christ came to be the living Word of God, to actually model and demonstrate who God is in a very, very real way. And that's why today's Psalm, Psalm 71, is written by a man who is concerned about the next generation. So let's go there, Psalm 71. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to look at this big idea that God is for all generations. That God has been around a lot longer than you, me, and generational transitions and issues, and that God is a God for all generations, for all cultures, for all time. That's at the heart of this psalm. And then it also explores, okay, so if that's my God, then how do I, in the course of my life, seek to live in such a way to better transfer it to the next generation? Because this author, we don't know much about him. He's one of the psalmists that is not named. As you know, David is the author of many of the psalms. Uh, and then Asaph was the number two author of a lot of psalms. And Solomon did a couple. And, but then there are the anonymous psalms that we don't know much. Except the tagline for this one caught my attention. Here it is. Prayer of an old man for deliverance. So I thought, okay, you know, maybe this was for me, you know. Because I know some old men. (laughs) I thought, you know, if this is a prayer of an older man that's been through the trenches, experienced God, understands who God is, and then has a passion to pass it to the next generation, to be honest, I kind of thought, that sounds like my story. Now, I'm not an old man like this old man. This old man is really, really old, okay? But I'm close enough to him that I understand it because I just know that as any of us age, you know, as you begin to age, you begin to think differently about what I would call the fourth quarter of life. And no matter how you want to slice the age, I'm a fourth quarter guy, okay? Now, I'm not in the final two-minute warning, okay? Can I take that off the table? I haven't just been to the doctor, had a bad checkup. I'm doing great right now, okay? You know, but, but the reality is, yeah, you know, when you get north of 60, you are, which I barely am, you are in kind of the fourth quarter of life. And some of you that are younger, this psalm is going to speak to you as well because it's going to talk about knowing God in youth, knowing God in childhood, and even knowing God in old age, and then how the lessons of this old man's life can be learned today to help us transfer it to the next generation. Got it? So that's where we're headed. Listen to the Word of God. And you know something? Just to mix it up a little bit, because I like new traditions, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? I like this. Out of respect for the Word of God. We may not do this every week, but I heard of a guy that did this in another church. Here we go. Listen to the Word of God. Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment 
to save me. You, for you are. Now notice there's going to be three or four times he's going to use that phrase. For you are. For you are. For you are. So if you have a pen, mark it. Not now, but later. For you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer, the ruthless man. This guy's got problems. He's got enemies. He's living real life. For you are, there it is second time, my hope. O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Verse 7. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails, for my enemies have spoken against me, and those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, Hey, God has forsaken him. Pursue him, seize him, for there is no one to deliver him now. Oh, God, do not be far from me. Oh, my God, hasten to my help. Let those who are my adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, big transition. First 13 verses. For you are, for you are, for you are. Do you see that? It's all about who God is. Verse 14, big transition. But as for me, in response to who you are, God, as for me, I will, and he's going to give a series of I will statements now. I will hope continually. I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all day long. And I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth. I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are yet to come. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You have, been, you, have, you have done great things. O God, who is like you? You who have shown me who have shown me many troubles and distresses, will revive me again, will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will praise you with a harp. Even praise your truth, O oh my God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre. O oh, Holy One of Israel, my lips shall shout for joy when I sing praises to you, and my soul which you have redeemed, my tongue also will utter, utter your righteousness all day long, for they are ashamed, for they are humiliated who seek my hurt. So Father God, as we stand before you, we ask that you take your word, and um, enlighten us, Father, from your wisdom, from your scriptures, to understand the, uh, the way to live and finish life strong. Give us the mindset of this old man. Help us to learn from his life, from your lessons, from what you inspired him to write in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Be seated.
The psalm breaks into two big parts with one big idea. The big idea I've given you, if you want to take out your outline, you can follow along as we uh, look at it together. It begins with two big phrases, two simple phrases. For you are, for you are my, for you are my, for you are my. Three times in the first 13 verses. Beginning in verse 14 and following, therefore, but I will, but I will, but I will. It begins to talk about how do you live in response to the truth of who God is. See, that's the flow of the psalm, and that's a great flow for life. It begins by knowing God is, but notice it's always not what God is in theory, it's what who God is in his life. He personalizes it even. He says, for I know God is my this, God is my that, God is my other. You know, so he's always talking about who God is, but also who God is in relationship to him. He names them. There are four, and then we'll talk about each a little bit. Number one, God is my rock and fortress, my safe place to go to in verses one through three. He says, you are my rock of habitation in verse three. He sums it up at the end of verse three, for you are my rock and my fortress. Look at it in the text. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the evildoer, and the ruthless man. You are my rock, my fortress. And he's talking here not just about a rock in your landscaping. He's talking about a big rock. For example, remember when Jesus spoke of Peter and he said, Peter, you are a rock, meaning he used a, a different Greek word for a little rock, but upon this rock, and he used a different Greek word, which means a bedrock, a foundation stone. It's like foundational bedrock. I will build my church. In the same way, Hebrew has different words for rock, and this word for rock is the big one. This is like granite. This is like half dome. This is like bedrock that you build on. And in fact, in that day, it's interesting because he says, you are my rock and my fortress. He says, you're the one I go to for safety is the idea. Because in that day and time, people didn't check in at night to Motel 6, Holiday Inn, the Hilton, or the Sheridan, or anywhere else. When you're traveling, and especially if your enemies are after you, the best fortress is made of rock. And the even better fortress is when the rock is the size of a mountain. So he's talking about, that's why in the Bible we have some old hymns that talk about God being the cleft of the rock, okay? Or this jagged entrance to the rock. So the, 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 the image here is of, is of a cave in a rock where you can get through this narrow entrance and be safe from your enemies. And, 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 they, and they can't take out a mountain, okay? They may try to bring down even a, a, a stone fortress, but this is the big rock. And he says, God, when I think of you, that's who you've been in my life. You have been my rock in my fortress. You're the one I go to for safety and protection. Number two, verse four, he says, therefore, and this just kind of builds, he says, therefore, rescue me, oh my God. This is a guy whose life is not easy. This old man has enemies. This old man has problems. He's going to continue to refer to them. So tuck that away because that's going to be important to passing the faith to the next generation. We'll come back to that later. But he says, for rescue me, O God, for you are, verse 5, my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. You are my hope and my confidence from my youth. This psalmist reflects back. 
He reflects back over his life and he says, this, uh, this run to God thing is not something that just came up when I started getting old and feeble because now I guess I need a little bit of God. This God thing is something that has served me all through my life from my youth. In fact, he'll add to it to just bring up the next one. In verse 6 through 8, he says, you've been a strong refuge for me from even my conception and my birth. Notice in verse 6, for you, by, by you I have been sustained from birth. Then he presses it back even further. Verse 6, For you are he who took me from the, my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have become a marvel to many. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? For you are my strong refuge. It's interesting. It sounds almost arrogant on the cover, doesn't it? On the first read through this thing, I thought, man, this guy has a pride problem. And it's bleeding into the scripture, you know? He says, because, wow, people marvel at me. But he says, because you are my strong fortress, my fortress, my, my refuge. In other words, what he's really saying is this, and, and, and those that study this thing deeper than I have say that this idea that there are those, those people marvel, uh, I have become a marvel to many, verse 7. That's a great phrase. It's one of two things. It can either mean people marvel at his life because in the midst of so much affliction and problems, his God is still who he trusts in. So in other words, they marvel at him like they marveled at Job when Job had everything taken away and he says, even if I, even if I have everything taken away from me, my fortune, my family, everything, I will not curse you, God. I am going to stay true to you. So they marvel at his steadfastness of holding on to God in the midst of his problems. There's another view that says that this language sounds like, yeah, this guy ha has had seasons of God blessing his life. He's had a lot of blessings in life and people marvel at how good God has been to him. So either way, it probably, it, it could, in fact, there's nothing in the Hebrew that would eliminate either view. It's probably a combination of both. Man, God has incredibly blessed him at times and then when, when, when those blessings seem to go away and life gets really hard and he's really under attack, Guess what? His faith in God is strong. God is still my strong refuge. And in light of that, people marvel at this guy. His hope and his confidence is there from his youth. He is a strong refuge from conception and birth. Let me just kind of pause for a second just to ask you this. When was the last time you told your story of faith to your children, grandchildren, or to a younger person you're mentoring. Someone that you're trying to share and build your faith into their life. Maybe it's someone you work with at work who, who looks to you. And by the way, you can be the older mentor no matter what age you are. I remember as a kid growing up, I, I loved mentoring the kids in my neighborhood. You know, I was a totally uh, mature 10, 11-year-old. And I just kind of became the guy in the neighborhood that would gather all the, the you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds together and say, let's play ball, you know. And, and, I, would, and I, would, I just found myself naturally doing that. It's just kind of the way God wired me. 
I was the guy that organized the game and collected the kids, and I said, you know something? I just came from football practice, and, you know, and, and I'm a dumb lineman, but at least I listened as they were coaching up the receivers on how to position their hands to catch the ball, especially on a quick out. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm talking pass patterns and technique and all this stuff, and you know, because you know, like I said, I'm a lineman, but at least I listen. So I would literally coach these kids. Recently, I got a, a, one of these little surprise Facebook messages from from uh, from uh, the Green Brothers. And, uh, and they were just two of these little squirts growing up in the neighborhood. But it was interesting because they actually remember with all this fondness the time that, that uh, we spent just you know, out in the field, in the neighborhood, learning to play ball. Well, it was learning how to stop a grounder, you know, you know, learning to do this, learning to, learning to catch a football, learning to just have fun together. But, but they remember that, and they actually remember the impact that it had on their life as I became a, younger, a, a young follower of Jesus Christ a few years after that and began to take my faith very seriously in high school and began to still have this friendship relationship with these little kids. And, you know, so my point is this, whether... Anyone in this room, the youngest person in this room, uh, how old is number 10 here on the front row? Three. See, he needs to be looking for a two-year-old to mentor. Yeah. He's got a nine-month-old sister. So he's already, that's a different kind of mentoring though. See, I had a younger sister. I didn't mentor her, but I sure developed her character. She would tell you that today. You know, because God uses affliction, and, and affliction <laughs> affliction in her life was her big brother. And I did. I caused some affliction to my sister. Okay, just picking on her. Okay, nothing put me in jail for. Okay, but the, the re... But, yeah, and I had two older afflictors, my two older brothers. They taught me how to afflict my sister. So, you know, so, yeah, we, we do, though. But here's the deal. This guy says, from my youth, I decided to put my hope and confidence in God. Don't ever be ashamed if you came to know Jesus Christ early. I used to think, you know something, I, I, I go to conferences and I hear people get up and tell their stories and they're in, they're in therapy and this and that and, and they talk about how they were rescued by Jesus out of their addictions and all this. And you know, sometimes I think, man, I'm, I'm kind of a bore. You know, because I had two parents that stayed together until my dad died and, and were faithful to each other. And my wife's parents kind of experienced that. Neither of us experienced the trauma of divorce. I thank God for that. And, you know, they weren't super perfect people, but they loved on us and helped us get through school and took us to church, introduced us to Jesus. And that's kind of all they did. And then they just kind of encouraged us. Just go off and be whatever you think God wants you to be. That's pretty good parenting. So as a result of that, I kind of grew up and, you know, I dated uh, several uh, lucky girls. <laughs> Not, but they lacked wisdom uh, because most of them broke up with me. <laughs> so it's funny, I found one that was both lucky and had wisdom. And that's Becky. <laughs> and I was, I was a blessed guy. I was a very blessed guy. But, you know, I was very blessed because when I was uh, a sophomore in high school, uh, I began to not just do church, but I began to be discipled and be built up in the faith by uh, a young 
worship a young youth pastor just out of UCLA. Um, He began to meet with me on Saturday mornings, teach me the Bible, talk about how to share my faith, challenge me to realize it's a relationship with God. It's not about doing church. It's about a relationship with me and Jesus, and church is an important part of that. And, And that guy changed me forever. He marked me forever. He later went to a church in San Pedro, California and got beat up by a group of people that just didn't have their priorities straight. And he made his mistakes. Um, so then he went to a church and healed up and now he's had a great, a great ministry in a church in Houston. But uh, he's in his very latter years. So I get a little choked up thinking of him. See, and he passed me off in college to a guy named Chuck Melcher, who, again, older than me, a little older than me, young dad with little kids, and I'm just a young buck in college, and he began to teach me about the faith and ground me in the faith, and, and he later did my wedding and, uh, as Becky and I got married, but had a huge impact marking me, and then he passed me off to Dallas Seminary to a guy named Howard Hendricks who had a huge impact on me. And two of those three are now, beyond being old men, they're now young again because they're young in heaven. So they've cycled back to their youth in heaven. Uh, Chuck Melcher went to be with the Lord last year after a long battle with cancer. Howie Hendricks, same problem. But they both served Christ well into their latter years. They were both great role models. You know, and that's kind of the, what I love about this psalm and about this psalmist is here's a guy that's lived real life, had his problems, didn't expect Jesus to put a bubble around him and protect him from life's troubles, but yet people marveled that he stayed true to his God. And it begins in his understanding of who his God is, just as those guys taught Dale who God is And therefore, I decided, you know something? My rock is going to be Christ. My hope and confidence will be in him from my youth. My refuge will be, you know, he'll be be my refuge from birth. Did I have questions and problems? You bet. Man, coming through school, uh, I was, and there's no pride in this, but all three of my brothers and I and my sister, we were kind of, for whatever, we had simple parents who never went to college, uh, you know, sons, uh, you know, they, they were raised by some coal mining families and, and then left the mines to be farmers and work in manufacturing and all this good stuff. But they, they loved on us. And for whatever reason, God gave my brothers and I a little extra, a little extra upstairs to where grades came easy and we were able to kind of excel academically. So we all three graduated top of our class um, and all this kind of stuff. So what that did for me was I had kind of a prideful academic spirit where I came into my early years, come out of my, in my earlier years of my youth, I began to say, you know something, you know, my parents are wonderful, they're loving, but they're not as smart as me. You know, I, I don't know where I got my DNA, but it couldn't have been from them. So I'm just kidding, mom, dad. Obviously, it was from them, being sarcastic. 
But, you know, but the point is, uh, I began to question, I, how do I know Christianity is true? How do I know this faith is something I can build on like a rock and put my hope and confidence in it and make it my strong refuge? And I had serious questions. You know, because at that point in my life, I'm getting exposed to everything. I'm studying other views of life, and I'm studying evolution, and I'm studying this and that. And I just thank God that during this season of my life, um, some people exposed me to evidence for the faith. And it began with a simple country pastor who had not much education at all. But when he heard that I had questions, he said, Dale... I don't understand all this science stuff enough to really answer your questions. So here's a book. And he brought out a big, thick textbook on biology. But it was a textbook written by some Christians who understood the issues of science and the Bible and how to bring those together. And the fact that, you know something, when you study creation, you begin to realize there is evidence that there must be a creator. We'll come back to that in a minute. But my point is this, it began in my youth. And the fact that God didn't have to rescue me from a bunch of, of, of lousy stuff that I would have gotten involved in had it not been for the fact that I'd started early on with Jesus. And that's not true for very many of you. But always appreciate the impact God made in your life when you were young, if you were blessed to have that. But then he jumps on in verses 9 through 13 and he says, So God, stay close to me in my old age. He says in 9.13, Don't cast me off now in my old age. Hey God, you know, this is the psalmist pouring his heart out to God. I don't think he's really fearful that God is just going to leave him, but he's just expressing, God, you stay close to me now. Because man, I needed you when I was a young buck, but guess what? Now that I'm closing out the deal, I want to stay close to my God. You know, and, and he says, uh, so he pours that out to God. Don't forsake me as my strength fails. And, 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 he, and he reports the type, uh, the imaginary uh, conversations that his enemies are having with each other. Hey, this guy, you know, it looks to me like he's getting old, man. You know, God has forsaken him. Now's the time. Let's go take him out, whatever that meant. Let's seize his possessions. Let's conquer him. Let's control him. I don't, I'm not sure what's going on here, but he had real enemies even in his latter years. But he reaffirms his faith. And then in verses 14 and following, he begins to tell us how he plans to respond. And here's his list. But as for me, I will. But as for me, I will. And it's summarized in four words. If you get these four words, you understand the second part of the psalm. I will hope continually in you. I will praise you more than I've ever praised you. I will tell of you to the next generation and I will worship you with passion. If you get those points, you've got the next part. But let me talk a little more about each of them. I will hope in you continually, he says in verse 14. The Hebrew word there is to hope, expect, trust in. One commentator defines it this way. He says, this word for hope used 42 times in the Old Testament means waiting with expectation of divine deliverance. Another said it means this, it's a long, patient waiting on God despite delays or disappointments. In other words, it's not, a, it's not a hope word that just is a shallow, I will hope in you, God, as long as things are good. It's no, God, I will have this steadfast, patient, longing 
I will long and I will, I will wait long on you if necessary. So as I think about how this helps us communicate to the next generation, let me make a few observations. First of all, when you hope in God continually, how are you doing? I, I ask myself two questions. What freaks me out? What freaks me out? And then secondly, am I pessimistic or optimistic as I face the challenges in life? Because that communicates to my children, or to you as a church for that matter, or for anyone else that you're trying to help shape their faith for the next generation. You know, whenever we're always freaked out by every little thing in life that doesn't go well, what does that say about where our hope is? See, if my hope is in this life, is my, if my hope is in, academic, is in uh, academic achievement, or if my hope is in going to the right college when I'm a youth, and, and if I don't get into that college, it's going to wreck my life. You know, or if my hope a little later in life is having the money to buy a house, or if my hope is to have a fat retirement, or if my hope is this or that, then when those things get threatened, I freak out. And that sends a signal, you know, Dale, your hope is not in your God. It's in all that stuff. So ask yourself, what kind of gets me anxious and freaks me out? And number two, am I pessimistic or optimistic? Because if you know Jesus Christ, if we know that we have a God who is all these things, in verses 1 to 14, 1 to 13, if God is and he is those things, then we need to, there's reason to be optimistic as you live life. And when you live life as a, life as a complaining, pessimistic, negative person, you send the signal to your kids or to other friends around you that your faith really isn't real. So those are just two little quick stop questions you can ask yourself. Now, some people say, yeah, but Dale, you know, I believe in living according to what is real and what I can see and taste and test. And, 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 and I know that the God thing, that's a faith issue, isn't it? And I don't want to live by faith in some fantasy world. Here's my answer to that. I tell my kids, and I told them this often, and I would say to you that the person who approaches life, I'll give it to you in a quote, as if there is no God. I'm going to purposely, I believe God's out there, but I'm going to live my life as if he's not there. That person is living in a fantasy world. Because when you study creation and you study all the evidence for the, for the necessity of God, what you begin to realize is, oh my gosh, there is a God. I've got to figure him out. And I've got to ask my question, has he revealed himself, which I think he has in the Bible. But the fact that if, if you live your life, I'm going to make all my decisions, and I'm going to leave God out of it, you are, make, you are living in a fantasy world because that world doesn't exist. You might believe it does, but it does not. Life without God is a fantasy. Our faith is based on the fact that God is real and he is there. Number two, he says, I'm going to praise God more and more, verses 14 to 16. And I know I wouldn't have time to develop this section thoroughly, so I gave it to you in this little statement. Notice the four things he says. If he's going to praise God more, he picks out these four. I praise you for your righteousness, your salvation, your mighty deeds, and yours alone. The first talks of his character. I'm going to talk about the character of God uh, because ultimately it's faith in the character of God. You've got to trust that if God has proven his love for you, and by the way, the cross is where you go, and we'll go there in a minute together for communion. 
If you look to the cross and you understand the ultimate proof that God is a God who loves you so deeply that he would die for you, then God says, then when I, when I confuse you and I don't show up and I don't give you what you are asking for and you wonder, do I even care? Am I even there? You look to the cross for the evidence. And that grounds us. The, the character of God is grounded in his deliverance. It's in our salvation. It's in his mighty deeds because there's times in the past when you have seen God show up and perform uh, amazing things in your life. And then he kind of wraps it and says, it's the praises to you alone. It's all about you. So it's just a quick summary, but it's a fun section. You could do a whole sermon just on this section. But the big idea is this. It's a reminder that if we're going to pass our faith on, you better be talking with the next generation about your God. You better make praising God for these things a priority. And as you do that, the third thing happens. You tell the generations to come. This was my favorite section. This is what sold me on teaching this psalm. Because he says, oh God, you have taught me from my youth. I will still declare your wondrous deeds. Verse 17. And then he says, even when I'm old and gray, oh God, do not forsake me. And then the last part of that verse. Until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to all who are yet to come. In other words, unborn yet. The baby is about to be born. It's, it's, it's amazing. He asks for longevity of life, not because he just wants to live long in retirement. He wants to live long. He says, oh God, don't let me go from the planet until I pass it on to the next generation. Wow, what a vision for life in the fourth quarter. Some of you at Seacoast are a little bit older. Guess what? You are an essential part of this church. Yes, our music will appeal a little more to a young adult, and I hope it does, because we want to be reaching the next generation. But your faith and your journey with Jesus Christ needs to be passed on to that next generation. So you need to be saying, wow, God, leave me around a little longer and give me one young friend to have lunch with, to talk with, to spend time with. That's why we want to be a multi-generational church. I loved his passion for the next generation. What do you model for the next generation? Well, the next section outlines it. I will declare your strength. That's trusting in him. I will talk about your righteousness is to the heavens. You talk of him, trust in him. Who is like you, O God? He marvels over God. And then he says, and in my troubles and my distresses, I believe you will revive me. In other words, in this section, these phrases tell me about how to transfer the faith. You trust God in front of your kids. You let them watch you trusting God, not your stuff. You talk of God. You marvel at God. God, there is no one like you. And you are open about the fact that, yeah, even in my troubles, you're going to revive me. I'm trusting you, God. But I think it's great for our kids and younger people younger in the faith to know that our faith is real and authentic. It works when God is delivering blessings. It works in the midst of troubles and trials and distresses. And that's what I love about the old man in the psalm. He's a real guy that has real problems but has a real faith in God, and that communicates. 
I want to give you a couple quick tips here. If you give me a few more minutes. When he says, who is like you? Marveling at God is central to passing on the faith. I'm going to give you two tips. Number one is this. Teach the uniqueness of God as creator and Jesus. The uniqueness of God as creator and Jesus. I think for the next generation to to deal with the faith in today's world, they need to understand that no matter what view of creation you take, young earth, old earth, this earth or that earth, I don't care exactly which view you take. But the reality is, at the bedrock, is that everything that we see was created. It did not just on its own happen or evolve. If you want to read a good book on this, there are several good ones. Um, But the fact of the matter is, evolution happens on a micro scale within species. So a bird's beak can get a little longer, but there is no evidence that's credible for interspecies macro evolution that everything developed from from a primordial soup and developed into you. I'm happy to talk the science on that with anybody in the room. So our kids need to understand that. Therefore, when I sent my kid off to UCLA, I sent her off with this book called What's Darwin Got to Do With It? It's an InterVarsity Press book. It's still in publication. It's a simple, short, almost comic book type written, but very credible in terms of explaining the, the fact that, you know something, there has to be an intelligent designer behind something like this creation. That's the point of the book. So we need to talk about the, the, the bigness of God in creation. And then we need to talk about the intimacy of God in Jesus. That this same God who created the universe stepped out of his universe to come and die for us on the cross and to show his love for us and to model for us what God looks like in human flesh. And the reality of Jesus and the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus those two big ideas, that there is a creator God and, is, and he's modeled by Jesus and Jesus was who he said he was because of his resurrection. Those are the bedrock things that if your kids or if you don't buy into either of those, you are never going to have a God who is your rock that you can build life on. So that's a tip. Talk about creation, talk about Jesus. good book to recommend would be any of the Lee Strobel books. Case for, he has a series, Case for Faith, Case for Christ, Case for for the Creator by Lee Strobel. I'd recommend all three books. By the way, we're offering a class on science in the Bible right now at 9 o'clock in the cafe. These are opportunities that you should probably avail yourself of if you have questions. Tip number two, be real in your faith and the painful side of life. That's the other thing I tried to do raising my kids was not pretend that life doesn't have its problems. Understand that Jesus walks through problems with us, not around them. It's huge if you're going to build a faith that is a rock. Last but not least, he closes in verses 22 to 24 with his worship of God with a passion. He worships his God with a passion. He says, I worship you with instruments for your truth, O Holy One. I sing, I shout for joy, my soul has been redeemed by you. And he worships God with a passion. And that's going to take us right into communion. You know, because 
worshiping God with a passion helps the next generation catch your faith. When your kids watch you blow off worship or treat it as if it's not important, then why should they care about your God? Make worship a, a passion and show it to your kids. I love having your kids come in here with you for worship. I would stay around both hours so you could do that. I'll give that sermon another time, but it helped shape my kids. I would make sure that you tell him to the next generation. You praise him more and you trust him continually. As we move into communion, the band's going to come to lead us and give us some worship. We're going to approach the Lord's table today as we often do, where you go and serve yourself the Lord's Supper and partake in it whenever you are ready. But as you do this, uh, we've got plenty of time, so just we want to give you a couple minutes just to sit, just to pray, just to recommit yourself to the God who came, invaded planet Earth, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead, that he might be your rock, your fortress, the one you trust in, Take some time to examine your heart and, you know, if there's stuff there that God brings to your mind, some sin that you need to confess, do it because he died for you. He's paid the price for that sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Take some time to prep your heart. And then only after the band begins to lead us in some worship, just then quietly slip to one of the tables. But there's no rush. Father God, use these minutes to prepare ourselves. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power and the wisdom it gives us for living even into old age with purpose. Father, we now take the next few minutes to remember the foundation of our faith. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Use these minutes to help each of us in the room recommit ourselves to loving you deeply, following you carefully, depending on you entirely. Because we can't live this life without you, Lord Jesus, without your spirit that lives in us, so use this time as a season of worship, recommitment. We worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.